James chapter 3, and let's take a few minutes to consider some elements of wisdom that we should delight in ourselves and that we should teach to our children. James chapter 3, I have tried to summarize our goals in child training, our goals with teaching the first commandment, the love of God, then teaching the second commandment, the love of neighbor, which we covered this morning from Galatians chapter 6, and then ruling the Spirit, and then some miscellaneous aspects of wisdom. And as we started this service with Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 11, wisdom is more valuable than many rubies, and there's nothing in this world that thou canst desire to be compared to it. Forget the things that you have, think of what you wish you had, and no matter how great it is or how important it is to you, it's not as important as wisdom. James chapter 3, let's consider speech. We want to teach our children to guard their lips. A man gives himself away as a fool by how he talks. A wise man holds his words in until he's asked and then says something profitable, something appropriate, and something godly and helpful to others. Look at this verse about having good children. Proverbs, James chapter 3 and verse 2. James 3, 2. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. If these words are true, then something we want to definitely teach our children is when to speak and when not to speak. How to speak and how not to speak. Because it says here, if a man does not offend in word, he's a perfect man. If a woman does not offend in word, she's a perfect woman. And this is what we want our sons and our daughters to be. Princes and great women in the earth by learning to control their lips. Because if you can learn to control your lips, you can control the rest of your body. Because your lips and your tongue want to flap and speak more than anything else any other part of your body wants to do. And it's our speech that gives us away as being wise or foolish. May the Lord bless us and our children that we guard their speech. There should not be allowed anything foolish to come out of a mouth in your home. And you can start at a young age. Ridicule, teasing, sarcasm to brothers and sisters. Cut off. Whining, complaining about anything or anyone. Cut off. Whispering, backbiting, murmuring, slandering. Any other child or anyone else. Cut off. Disrespectful speech to parents. Or disrespectful speech to anyone else in authority. Cut off. Because if you can learn to control this, you're a perfect man. So we want to grab hold of the mouths of our children. Look at Proverbs 22.11. Proverbs 22.11. Every young man should get excited about this verse. You've seen it before. You've heard it before. And I hope that it impresses itself upon you. Young Jonathan Nappy, I still wonder if you know this verse. You used to quote it to me. Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 11. He that loveth pureness of heart, for the grace of his lips, the king shall be his friend. He that loveth pureness of heart, for the grace of his lips, the king shall be his friend. That's what we want our sons to be. Princes in the earth. 
It starts with a pure heart, and that pure heart comes through gracious lips. Gracious, kind, gentle, agreeable, helpful, appropriate, suitable words come out of this man's mouth because he has a pure heart. And when great men hear wise speech flowing from a pure heart, they want to be your friend, even if that man is a king. For the grace of his lips, the king shall be his friend. How do you become the friend of great and important people? Gracious speech. We want to teach our young men to be that so that they can be princes in the earth. Those in authority, the great men of the earth, the kings of the earth, the kind of men they want around them have gracious speech. Not fools who can't control themselves because that's going to shame the throne. Not impulsive people who say things that they shouldn't because that's going to give away state secrets. You want gracious men who know how to control their speech and who say the appropriate thing at all times. That's what we want to teach our children. To grab a hold of their mouths and guard their speech and think before they utter any words. Look at chapter 15 while we're in the book of Proverbs. Speech. Every time your children opens their mouth, their mouths, you should think and judge their words as to whether they're appropriate or not and cut them off if it's foolish talking or jesting, things that are not convenient for a child of God, things that are not convenient and will not help you in any sphere except a sphere of fools. To rise in the world, you need to have gracious speech. Solomon just told us that. Chapter 15, verse 1. A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. This is, this is a rule of wisdom. If someone is angry at you, the way to respond is not with more fighting words. It's to respond with soft words because you can diffuse their anger and end the fight. And we want to teach our children that. We want to teach our children to be wise. I would hope our children grow up and know that this verse is in the Bible. Even if they can't find it, they know it's there. A soft answer turneth away wrath. If your boss is angry with you, if the policeman at your window of your car pulled to the side of 85 is angry with you, a soft answer turneth away wrath. Don't you try to excuse yourself or argue with him that you weren't really going over the speed limit. He doesn't make as many errors as you make. Trust him. And humble yourself. You know, I'm asked often, and I've been asked often throughout my life as a pastor, how do I deal with this situation where someone's angry with me? I go right to Proverbs 15.1. And it's something we want to teach our children. Don't get angry and throw back fighting words, because that just stirs up the fight to be worse than it was before. Soft answer. A soft answer turneth away wrath. There's another verse in Proverbs that says, you can break a prince's bones with soft answers. Right. You can break the bone with a soft answer. A prince. A prince has authority. He can just dismiss you. But you can break his bone by answering softly. That's the way to deal with authority when they're upset with you. We want to teach our children how to guard their speech. You can do this in the home. When a child comes home, and someone was angry with them, don't let them stomp around and say anything critical, negative, or angry 
in response to that, you can correct it right at home, that it should be a soft answer, so that when they go back and meet that person, the soft answer will come out of their lips. Look at Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. What is a real prince in the earth? There are men that are princes, and there are men that are not. The Bible speaks of mean men. It means average men. The Bible speaks of base men. That means men that are below average. The Bible says all these things. The Bible is the one that divides men up. But princes learn how to control their speech. A man that can't control his speech can't control anything else. He's an out-of-control individual. He'll never be a prince. No one's ever going to give him a position of authority because he can't rule his mouth. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 6. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. I love Colossians 4, 6, tied up with Proverbs 22, 11, because there is no difference in the religion of God from the old to the new when it comes to how we ought to speak. It's the same God teaching the same lessons. For the grace of His lips, the King will be His friend in Proverbs 22, 11. Here it says, let your speech be always with grace. Gracious words. Forgiving, overlooking, gentle, kind, helpful, agreeable, cheerful. Gracious words. Let your speech be always with grace. Seasoned with salt, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. Because you can count on it. 99% of the time with men, you should respond graciously. Once in a while, you need a little pinch of salt. But that's not the point right now. The point is, let your speech be always with grace. Colossians 4 and verse 6. Let's come back to Proverbs chapter 11. Proverbs chapter 11. Speech. Every time your children open their mouths, you have an opportunity for child training. Everything they say is either agreeable and acceptable with the Word of God, or it's not. And if it's not, then correct it. If it is, commend it. And teach your children how to speak the way that God wants them to speak. Then you can have children that are like David, or like Solomon, or like Paul or Timothy, who are princes in the earth, that men love to be around and have them around, They'll have an unlimited number of friends. They can influence for the kingdom of heaven because they know how to rule their lips. And you know there, do you know how many verses there are in the Bible about speech that we could preach on a subject like this forever? Just about forever. But that's it. I'm through with that particular point. Get a hold of their speech and teach them how to speak like a prince. Proverbs chapter 11, I want to move to another point. Graciousness, since we spoke of grace from the lips, overall graciousness. The benevolent, kind, gentle, patient, agreeable, cheerful, friendly, loving, beneficial, helpful, warm, charming approach to life. That's a gracious man and a gracious woman. We usually use other words like that is a wonderful person. Or she is such a sweet person. And what we mean by those words, which aren't necessarily in the Bible, we mean graciousness. 
And graciousness is something we want to teach. A gracious person forgives very easily. A gracious person hardly ever gets upset. A gracious person is always agreeable. A gracious person is friendly. They're kind. They participate. They make you feel warm and secure because you know they're never going to attack you or criticize you. Graciousness is a wonderful trait taught in the Bible, seldom mentioned in our society. But it makes the difference between princes and base and average men and women. Because look at the verse we have to look at. Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 16. A gracious woman retaineth honor, and strong men retain riches. We're looking at the first half. Gracious women retain honor. A woman that is gracious, she is warm, friendly, forgiving, kind, gentle, with her speech and her actions. She is always honored. She is esteemed highly at all times. It's a woman that is overbearing, critical, negative, unhappy, standoffish, petty, intrusive, obtrusive, irritating, questioning, poking, pushing, suggesting, all those things. She never gets any, she doesn't get any honor and she never retains any honor. Ladies, young girls, if you want to be great in the sight of God, in the sight of all men, if you want to have a reputation that when your name is spoken, your first name, forget your last name, your first name right now, when that is spoken, that everyone thinks that is a wonderful person, you're told a secret right here in five words. A gracious woman retaineth honor. Go look up the word gracious. I've tried to define it three times for you already, but go look it up and think about it. A gracious woman will always be esteemed. If someone speaks to you, you should be able to have a very calm, sober, kind, gentle conversation with them. See, there's problems on two ends. If you don't talk, you're not gracious. Because you make it unbearably painful for the person talking to you to keep the conversation going because you won't help out. If you help out too much by being critical and overbearing and wanting to put forth your opinion at all times, you're not gracious either. A gracious woman retaineth honor. Every young girl should lay hold of a verse like that and say, I want that verse to be true in my life. I want to retain honor. I want to be gracious. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Ecclesiastes chapter 10. There was one, there's a man in the Bible that says grace was poured into his lips. He was a true prince. The Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is poured into thy lips. Psalm 45. Grace is poured into thy lips. Listen, the first sermon Jesus preached. What city was it? Nazareth. What chapter in the Bible? Luke 4. They got up and they let him read the Scriptures. And he went forward and he read from Isaiah 61 where it says, The Spirit of the Lord hath anointed me to preach the Gospel. And he read a few verses from Isaiah 61. He closed up the book and he went and sat down. And it says the whole place you could have heard a pin drop on the carpet because of the gracious words that proceeded out of his lips. He said, This day are these words fulfilled in your midst. To take the Word of God that the Jews did esteem very highly 
and say, those words were written about me. And to do it in such a gracious way that the whole place marveled at his gracious speech. Then what did he do? He preached a short sermon on election and they led him to the brow of a hill to kill him. The most gracious man on earth, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he preached about election, they tried to kill him in the same service. Here's what it says about men. Ecclesiastes 10 and verse 12. The words of a wise man's mouth are gracious, but the lips of a fool will swallow up himself. A fool, once he starts talking, he just destroys his own character and reputation to all men. This is the most dangerous thing you've got. Your mouth. The most dangerous thing you have. If it doesn't give, out, if it doesn't give forth gracious words, then you're a fool and you're going to swallow up yourself. You're going to consume yourself while you're talking. Everyone's going to hear the grating noise coming out of your mouth and the foolishly chosen words and know that you're a fool. If you're a prince and gracious, gentle, kind, agreeable words come out of your mouth, all men will know that you're a prince. The king will want to be your friend and you rise to the top because the cream rises when the cream is gracious. And God will bless that man. That's the difference between a prince and a gentleman and the base men of the world. We want our sons to be princes. Gracious words. Gracious conduct. Always agreeable. Never wanting to do things their way. Wanting to do things the way other people want to do it. Because that's how the world gets along. The, the world does not have a place for independent thinkers. The world has a place for Bible thinkers. And to have the graciousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And those that were like Him. That's something we want to teach our children. Always to be gracious. Always to be forgiving. Always to be cooperative. Always to be helpful. That's a gracious person. We want our children to be that way. If a woman does it, a young girl does it, she's going to have a reputation. She's going to keep it for her entire life. If a young man does it, he'll be considered a prince his entire life. Lord, help us to be gracious in speech and actions. Come back to the book of Proverbs. These, are, these things are just to get your appetite wet. That's W-H-E-T. Wet for wanting to learn and teach wisdom to your children. For those of us that are too old, and we have few years left, or few opportunities with children, we have grandchildren, and we can't give up just because they're married. And we can choose these things for ourselves, even if we're later in life. It's better to be a prince before you die than to be a fool your entire life. Proverbs chapter 16. I want to move to a third topic. Just quick topics to provoke you to think of what can I do for my children to make them into princes and great women in the earth. Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 8. It's to teach them priorities. There are some wonderful priorities in the Bible, and there are outlines of all these priorities collected together that you're welcome to use to teach your children. Look at this one, Proverbs 16, 8. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues without right. That is a comparison that Solomon taught his sons. Son, it's better to have a little and have gotten that little bit by doing what is right and not sinning than to have a whole lot because you've cheated in any part of your life. 
A little with righteousness is better than a lot without righteousness. And you teach your children that from the first day to the last day. And you keep teaching that. It doesn't matter how much you have. It's how you got what you have. A little with righteousness is better than a lot where you've cheated in any part of your life to get it. How about 17.1? I love, I love the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is overlooked and ignored in many churches. And it's full of wisdom. Look at 17.1. Better is a dry morsel and quietness therewith than a house full of sacrifices with strife. What does that mean? What's a house full of sacrifices? That means you've been to the tabernacle or the temple and you offered the best animals of your flock. You brought the fat of your flock to the Lord and you've taken home the portion that the priests were to give you to come home and eat with your family. So your house is full of filet mignon. Are you all with me? And it's the best filets from your whole flock because that's what you were to give to the Lord. That's the meat of the sacrificial meats that are intended here in this verse of 17.1. So Solomon compares a house that is full of the best meats that can possibly, you can possibly have and put out on your grill. And he compares that to a house that's only got a box of saltines. A dry morsel. Better is a dry morsel and quietness therewith than a house full of sacrifices with strife. And we teach our children, children, it is better to sit around and have peanut butter and crackers and have a peaceful home than it is if we were to be living on the most expensive fare at the most expensive restaurant in town, but angry at each other. Peace is more important than strife. And peace is so much more important than strife and fighting that if even if you have nothing but a dry morsel, it's better than a great meal. And some of you that have lived long enough know exactly what that verse is saying, don't you? You can sit and eat the most expensive meal and have your heart eat you up from the inside out because there's strife at the table. I know some of you love crackers and peanut butter with me. We can be happy around a table with crackers and peanut butter as long as everybody's happy at that table. You know what? When people are happy at the table, who cares what you feed me? I'll tell you how cheap I am. You, you, you pop me a batch of popcorn. You give me a batch of popcorn and we're happy with each other. Does it get any better than that? And I don't mean low-fat or fat-free popcorn, brother. Don't even suggest that to me. That's like eating tree bark. I want it soaked in butter. I want it to slide down where I don't have to chew it. Enough about that. You know what I mean. Isn't it terrible what they've done today? Take the fat out of food? Are you kidding? The Bible from cover to cover said it's the fat that makes it taste good. Look at this. Can you teach your children these these principles? That one thing is better than another. Can you teach them that? The Bible has a whole list of them. Look at chapter 15. Chapter 15 and verse 17. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a stalled ox and hatred therewith. A very similar verse. But here instead of a dry morsel it compares herbs. What if all you've got is a bowl of spinach? A bowl of spinach versus a stalled ox. A stalled ox are cattle that are kept in pens where they can't wear their fat off 
It's the fatted calf of Luke chapter 15. A stalled ox. An ox kept in his stall so that he gains weight quickly and a lot of it's fat because he can't run around the field. So it's a great steak versus a bowl of spinach. But if you've got a bowl of spinach in love, even if the spinach got cold because you didn't want to eat it for the first ten minutes as it sat there, don't I know that lesson well. My parents used to say to me, you ought to eat it now because it's better right now than it's going to be in ten minutes after you've thought about how much you don't want it. I don't care if it's cold spinach in a bowl. If there's love at the table, it's better than that stalled ox where there's hatred at the table. And you teach your children that a family that gets along, brothers and sisters that love each other, a family that loves one another is better no matter what you have in the way of the things of this world. It's better than if you had everything this world has to offer, but you're angry at each other and there's hatred in the family. This is the wisdom of God's Word. This is child training. This is child training from God's Word. Setting priorities for children to learn how to think. That getting along and being happy is more important than what you've got. You know what children think, though? I'd be happy if I just had more. If my bicycle was a little brighter. If it was a 26-inch instead of a 24-inch, I'd be happy. If it wasn't a bicycle, but it was a mini-bike, then I'd be happy. If it wasn't a mini-bike, but it's a motorcycle, then I'd be happy. If it wasn't a motorcycle, but a car, then I'd be happy. No, things won't make you happy. And the wise man tried them all. Do you know this man had a tricycle, bicycle, moped, motorcycle, and a car? And a chariot, which you've never had. And King Solomon said, love is better than having those things. The priorities of God's Word. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We've covered three things already. Good speech. Every time they open their mouths. Let's make sure that the words that come out are the words that a prince would speak. A prince like the Lord Jesus Christ. A prince like David. The second thing was graciousness. Because a gracious man like the Lord Jesus Christ or like David, a gracious woman is going to retain her honor and a gracious man is going to be the king's friend. Then we looked at priorities and the Bible's full of them. The Bible does tell us this is more important than this. And we ought to teach our children that so they automatically make the right value judgments on everything they see in life. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. I don't want to start there. Turn back to the left a few pages to Proverbs chapter 30. Let me pick another verse to start with. Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 27. It's about a little creature. It's about a little creature. Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 27. The locusts have no king, yet go they forth all of them by bands. We need to teach our children that being a loner is being a loser. There are temperaments that tend toward being loners. And they need to be pulled back into society because God knows and He tells us with the wisdom of His Word that being a loner is being a loser. Remember, We have group dynamics taught to us this morning from Galatians chapter 6 of how we're to relate to one another. We are creatures of society. We can't be loners. Loners are losers. They never make it anywhere. They're nothing. And I'll show you that in a minute. But we're going to use Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 27 to introduce the subject. And it's something I presented to the young people just a couple of months ago. The locusts have no king. 
yet go they forth all of them by bands. Remember, those little three-inch grasshoppers that we call locusts in the world. The desert locust. That little creature is very solitary. He lives by himself. He eats by himself. The only other time he ever encounters another locust is when they get together to reproduce. Otherwise, he's by himself. When a shortage of food comes up, and he's called solitarius, the, the, the scientific definition of this desert locust, when he is in this particular mode, is called solitarius. You know how many people are playing your card game when you're playing solitaire, right? So you're able to understand that. That's by yourself. When food gets short and the locusts have to condense together because there's only a small amount of food and they get close enough to where their rear legs begin to rub each other, where they get into contact with each other and rub each other, they totally change. They change color, they change shape, and they change personality. And the scientific word for them then is gregarious. We use the word gregarious to describe an outgoing, friendly person that loves to be around people. It is an amazing... Look it. Do you know how long ago they discovered this? They have thought that there were two species of grasshoppers or of locusts until just about 20 years ago. Solomon had it nailed down 1000 B.C. Praise the God of heaven. I have a book right here that says the locust is the greatest example of understanding getting along with others. They don't even have a king to tell them, but all of a sudden they start doing it and they go forth by bands. We call them a swarm of locusts. They can cover square miles and devour everything. They could not do that by themselves. If they tried to fly across the Red Sea by themselves, they'd be scarfed down by some bird. But let me tell you, birds don't want to see a whole swarm of them coming because they get together and they're called swarms of locusts. And they totally change. And Solomon told told us about this. And the purpose for this one verse lesson is little creatures can teach us big lessons. And the big lesson is you can't be a loner. Locusts don't even have a king telling them they need each other, but they choose to need each other by God's instinct that He puts in them and the change that He makes in them. And that's what we need to do by the Word of God that comes to us. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. By nature, I'm a loner. By nature, if I could have my way, I'd sit in my office, have my wife come and visit me every little while, and I'd be very happy by myself in my flesh. My wife knows before we married, and before I had any call to the ministry, and before I had any commitment to anybody but myself, and to her when she was useful for me, if you know what I'm saying, I'm speaking as a loner. You know where we were going to live? We were going to have an underground house in Montana, and I was going to trade bonds and stocks from Montana by satellite hookup. I wanted a hundred to a thousand acres so that nobody could get near me. I wanted to be so far out away from everybody and I would trade out there and we'd make our trip into town once a month to get food. Or she could. Of course I needed to have her there too. And that's where we would have our family because I'm a loner by nature. But that's all wrong. That's all wrong. Look at what it says, Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and verse 9. We need to teach our children this, especially those that tend toward being loners. 
Two are better than one. Here we have the word better again. There's a priority here. Two are better than one. Don't tell me being a loner is better. The God of heaven says two are better than one. Two people can get more done and accomplish more and please God more and help each other than one that's alone. And it's going to end these four verses by saying three are better than two and four are better than three. All implied in the language that society is better than being solitary. Being a gregarious locust is better and has its value over being a solitarious one. Here are the, here are the verses. Two are better than one. And the Lord gives you four reasons why. Number one, because they have a good reward for their labor. It's fun to share blessings. Two, for if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. The second reason that two are better than one, or having lots of friends is better than having none, is because they can help you up when you fall. You might fall financially. You might fall physically. You might fall spiritually or emotionally. Others can help you up. But if you're a loner, you have no help to get up. You won't get up. You'll never realize your full potential. Number three is in verse 11. Again, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? Two people in an airplane that has crashed at the North Pole. Two people in an airplane that has crashed at the North Pole. If they unite their bodies together and hold on real tight to each other, do they produce any more heat? No. Will they last longer in that position than if they stayed at the separate ends of the airplane? Absolutely. Why? Because the heat given off by the one is absorbed by the other, and the heat given off by that other is absorbed by the first. And the two of them can have heat together and last a whole lot longer than if they're apart. It's called synergism in chemistry. I'll let you ask Chris about it on Wednesday night. But the value of things when they're combined is greater than the sum of their parts. And when you add people together, they are able to accomplish things that when they're apart, they cannot accomplish. This is the Word of God. It's the wisdom of Solomon. It's something we need to teach our children lest they become loners. They need to be part of the society of the kingdom of Jesus Christ and help one another. All those one another verses of the Bible require you not to be a loner. That's the third reason. Because there's extra benefit when people come together. Number four is in verse 12. And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. If you're by yourself and an enemy comes up, that enemy may be able to overcome you. But if you've got a friend and there's two of you and one enemy comes up, then you can overcome the enemy. And if you have another friend, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. And the implication of Ecclesiastes 4 is, two is better than one, which it states. Three is better than two, which it implies in verse, in the verse 12. Four is better than three, which is the whole lesson, until we have a body called a church, and together we're able to grow up to the, the full stature of the measure of Jesus Christ by what every joint supplies and the measure of every part that's what ecclesiastes 4 16 told us our brother keith read it to us this morning we teach our children you can't be a loner learn to love the family don't go hide in your room oh don't go hide in your room you get out here with the family 
We're going to stay together as a family. You need to learn the benefits of a family. Don't hide at church. Don't leave quickly and go out and hide in your car. Learn the importance of society in our church. I call this group dynamics and it needs to be taught. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Let's move to another one. Little lessons. I call the miscellaneous lessons of wisdom that the Bible teaches us that we should in turn teach our children. I tried to comfort those of you that tend toward being loners that I would be by nature. But the Bible tells me I can't be and my job won't let me be. Neither will my family. That doesn't mean I don't... I love having you guys come around. Just by nature, I'm pretty content by myself. But that's pitiful. That's just pitiful. The Lord wants us to serve one another. Every one of those one another verses requires that I participate among some group of people. And do you know what I have found? As selfish Johnny was put to death and spiritual Johnny was given control of this man's life, there is great pleasure in friends, in serving and giving and being part of a body. You, I think you all know that when this church breaks up after an assembly and we're all standing around and the warm chatter and the friendly love that fills the atmosphere blesses my heart like a nectar from the sweetest flower because I love that companionship and the blessing of the church of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for teaching me against selfishness and solitariousness to coin a word. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. I'll just stop there. The context runs all the way to verse 8. Verse 3, this is the will of God. Do you want to know the will of God for your children? It's their sanctification. What does sanctification mean? To be holy. When something has been sanctified like a saint, sanctified like a sanctuary, that means it's a holy place or a holy person. To be sanctified is to be holy. This is the will of God for your children's lives. To be holy. What kind of holiness are we talking about? Verse 3 tells us. What kind of holiness is it? Sexual holiness, that ye abstain from fornication. It is your job as parents to war against all matter of fornication. Fornication is having sex outside of marriage. This is the will of God for your family's life. This is the will of God for your children. Young people, this is God's will for your life. If you think that your parents are too restrictive on you, they are being restrictive to obey the Word of God. They are not doing that out of some personal whim. They're not doing it to defraud you or to deny you the pleasures of life. They are trying to give you the ultimate pleasures of pleasing God and getting into a marriage where you're not guilty of past relationships. And this is the will of God. And so we make war against fornication. That means we don't let our children read things about fornication. We don't let them hang around other children that commit fornication or whose parents commit fornication. We don't watch television programming or listen to music that promotes fornication. We hate fornication. We hate casual sex, partying, and anything else you want to call it that occurs outside of marriage. And so young people and children, when the rules come down, 
You might not always get the explanation, but I'm giving you the explanation right now. Look what God's telling us. This is the will of God. Even your sanctification that ye abstain from fornication. And so, when any two of you are allowed to spend some time together and do something, you're chaperoned. Because we're not going to let you get out there where you can commit fornication. We are going to try our best to let you have as much pleasure as possible, but we are going to cut off any avenue for you to fornicate. The world's ideas. Well, as long as you're 16, you know, the the two girls are talking in school. When do you get to start dating? When I turn 16? When? What about you? My dad said 14. Oh, a 14-year-old girl is going to be allowed to get in some boy's car and drive to Six Flags and back and spend 18 hours down there in Atlanta? Are you out of your mind? Do you know what they ought to do in that car? And don't please understand me when I say this. Do you know what they ought to do in that car? They ought to fornicate before they can get out of Greenville County. Do you know why they ought to? Because that's the way God made them. And do you know who's to protect them from themselves? Parents who don't let them do such a thing. You know how I'm using the word ought. I'm speaking as a fool. There is such a strong natural drive in two kids to get into trouble in a situation like that. It's up to parents to keep that from ever happening. This is the will of God. Even your sanctification that ye abstain from fornication. That every one of you, every single one of you know how to possess your vessel in honor. That's your body. To keep it in honor. And we try to help you as parents. I try to help you as a pastor. And that's why we have the rules that we have. We're not trying to destroy your fun. We want you to get married and have a wonderful relationship. You wait till you see how we celebrate Chris and Sarah. And listen, all of us adults, we're thinking about what Chris and Sarah have been doing the last ten days. We ain't no prudes. Pull, pull us aside. We'll turn your face red. But we don't have to do that. You should trust us. We want you to have a happy sexual life. But God's given the order for it. You cheat God, you're going down. You're going down. You will not enjoy the fullness of the sexual pleasure that God intended unless you do it God's way. We're going to do it God's way. Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. Every one of us men, when we hug Chris, whether it's spoken or unspoken, it's, Chris, the last ten days have been pretty good, haven't they, son? There isn't any shame in that. There's not a thing in the world wrong with that. What do you think God made marriage for? Go take a look at Genesis chapter 2 and how God gave Eve to Adam when she didn't have a single thing on. The Lord arranged all that. We love it in its proper place. And as parents, let's keep it in its proper place. Genesis chapter 6, a new point about what we need to treat our, teach our children, train our children. Genesis 6, the first two verses, And it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. There's two categories of people in Genesis 6, 1 and 2. There are the sons of God. Those are the people of God. 
Those are the, the, the saints of God. Those are the elect of God. Those are the true believers. Then there's the daughters of men. Those are worldly women, ungodly women from ungodly families, ungodly family trees. And they're two different categories. But the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were very beautiful. And the sons of God began marrying the daughters of men and marrying out of the Lord. And the rest of this chapter and chapter 7 and chapter 8 and chapter 9 is about what event? The flood. God sent the flood because the sons of God began to marry the daughters of men. And we must teach our children from the earliest days. They will not question it. Or they will hardly question it. If you teach them from the earliest days that you can only marry in the Lord. And in the Lord means a person sold out in love for Jesus Christ. In a church that preaches the whole truth. That's the only person you can marry. Anything else is out of the question. That is settled and done. This is not up for debate. Because this is what the Lord wants us to practice. I never want you to forget the seriousness of what took place when the sons of God married the daughters of men in Genesis chapter 6. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The people of God are to marry among themselves. They are to find other believers of like precious faith that are sold out to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, and they are to marry in the Lord. And we must teach our little children that. You can repeat this over and over so that they will hardly think outside the box. And the box is marriage in the Lord. At, at, at any age, they know that it's off. It's not for debate. Don't bring me and show me anyone. Don't talk to me about anyone. They have to fear the Lord. They have to love Jesus Christ. They have to want to live by the Bible. They have to truly be in the Lord. You know, there's lots of Americans that say they're Christians. That isn't nearly good enough. What does that mean? That any Catholic's just as good as a Baptist? There's a huge difference between the two, but a Catholic says that they're a Christian. That is not in the Lord. In the Lord is one committed to the religion of the New Testament in the way God has shown us. If we thought that there was a different way to worship God, we would change and follow that way. This is the way that we understand. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 39, it's speaking about widows. But the point is still here. The wife is bound, 1 Corinthians 7:39. The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth. But if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will. Only in the Lord. That's like God speaking to Adam in the Garden of Eden. Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. Except one. Christian widow, if your husband dies, you are welcome to marry anyone you wish. Only in the Lord. Chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11. And verse 11. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man. A man ought to have a woman, and a woman ought to have a man. In the Lord. In the Lord. Otherwise, marriage is corrupted if it's not a man and a woman in the Lord. King Solomon 
the man who wrote us the book of Proverbs, the man who wrote us the book of Ecclesiastes, had his heart overthrown by marrying the daughters of this world. 1 Kings chapter 11, about the first ten verses tell us that his heart was changed from worshiping the God of heaven that had appeared to him in a vision because he married ungodly women. His first wife that we're told about was the daughter of Pharaoh out of Egypt. He married a pagan unbeliever and it destroyed his life. God had told Moses, don't you ever let the people of Israel take daughters from the nations of Canaan. Don't you ever give your daughters to their sons. It is prohibited. It's an abomination to me. I want my people to marry among themselves. Believers with believers. That's the only way you're going to have a happy marriage anyway. This is the word of the Lord on this subject. There was another young man. Samson. The Bible tells us in the four chapters that are written about Samson, he loved the daughters of the Philistines. Over and over, Samson got in trouble with the Philistines. When he would come home and tell his father and his mother at the supper table, I saw a good woman among the Philistines. Go get her for me. His dad would say, and his mother would say, Can't you find a wife among all the virgins of Israel? What are you looking among the Philistines for? They worship Dagon. They're pagans. They don't worship the God we worship. We're totally opposed on this most important of matters, and that is our religion. Solomon said, I mean, Samson said, she pleases me well. Go get her for me. You know where he ended up? Ruined in a prison house because he had chosen to follow beautiful women of the Philistines rather than God-fearing women of Israel. He could have found a woman among the Israelites as beautiful as Delilah, but he had already sold himself out to the wild women of the Philistines and it ruined his life. We have to teach our children from the earliest days because this is very important to God. He drowned the earth once because the sons of God married the daughters of men. The godly group of saints on this earth began intermarrying with worldly unbelievers and God brought judgment on the earth. We have to teach our children that. We want the best for you children. You can't cheat and it, it won't work. It won't work. God says we can't do it anyway. Even if we thought it would work. This isn't, we haven't made this up. We adults didn't have a meeting and decide we're not going to let any of you marry outside of the Lord. God told us. All we're trying to do is obey God. When you're a parent, someday you're going to make your choice whether you're a parent like God told you to be a parent or you're a parent like some other idiot like Benjamin Spock told you to be a parent. But right now, we've made the decision that we're going to be a parent like God said. And so this is what the Bible tells us. We can't help it. It's what the Bible says. How do we want to help it? It's a wonderful blessing to have a woman that fears God beside you and that approaches everything in life, trouble or blessing, in the same way you do. First Timothy 6.6. I'm almost done. Almost has a wide latitude of definition. First Timothy 6.6. Oh, we can teach our children this. I love this little rule. This is the rule for success. This is the rule for success. But godliness, 1 Timothy 6.6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. If we can teach our young people that that is success right there, two things equal success. Godliness, living a godly life 
so that you have a clean conscience, a heart full of joy and peace with God in heaven, and contentment with the things you have in life, whether it's a little car, a little house, or a little wife, or a little husband, or a little job. It doesn't matter. Godliness with contentment is great gain. The God of heaven said that. Children, get that verse. Don't let the word te- the world tell you that you need more things for success. The real success is Donald Trump. You know, you got to have some big buildings. That isn't success. The man's unhappy. He has to keep remarrying. His wives get rid of him because he's a pain to live with. And anyone who listens to him for more than three minutes can't stand him because he's an arrogant pig. And excuse me for talking that way about some worldling out there, but I'm not really sorry. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Living a godly life so that you know you're pleasing God. You're living by the Bible. You're pleasing men. You have no guilt or shame. You live a bold life because you're pure before the Lord. And then you're content with what God's given you. You're content with your body. You're not out paying $50,000 to have six different surgical procedures to improve your looks. You're content. Godliness with contentment is great gain. It's not getting more things. It's godliness with contentment right there in that verse. Contentment is a wonderful thing and it has to be learned. Paul said, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. If it's learned, then that means it can be taught. If it can be taught, then parents ought to teach children. It's not what you have, children. It's how you approach and appreciate and are thankful for the things that you have. This is success right there. If you try to cheat on either one of those two, or both, you will not gain in this world and you're going to be unhappy the rest of your life. Those of us who have already tried to live outside the, that little sentence already know it. But see, you don't, need to, you don't need to hear our experience, although I'll be happy to tell it to you when you ask me. This is God's Word. If God said it, then that settles it. That is true success right there. Godliness with contentment. Every second, every second that you burn thinking about something you wish you had that you don't have, tell me how you feel. Is it a a good feeling? A good feeling? You know, every second that you burn and waste, I say burn because you're wasting your life. Because you don't have something that you wish you had that God didn't give you. And so there you go through life miserable. Now think about it. You don't have the thing that you want. And you're not happy about not having the thing that you want. And then you get to die. What a way to spend a life. Godliness with contentment is great gain. If you can look at the things you have and say, Lord, I'm content with this. This is one. Thank you for giving me the house that I have. Thank you for giving me the car that I have. Thank you for the job. Thank you for the parents. Thank you for the spouse that I have. It's more than I deserve. You can have what you want, and you can be happy about having what God wants for you. That is success. Go ahead. Wish for something you don't have. Live outside the rules of godliness. In either case, you ruin your own life. Every man shall bear his own burden. We need to teach our children contentment. 
One more thing, just quickly. Generosity. Let's teach our children to be generous. When there's a situation calling for a need, teach them to fork it over. Because there, didn't we read a verse this morning from Proverbs 11.24? There is that scattereth, but it tendeth to increase. You know, the accountant types, and don't any accountants in here get offended. There's a number of you. But the accountant types only know how to deal in a mathematical realm. Two plus two equals four to them. But God said it doesn't. Because God said, if you will scatter one of those four, four minus one equals five. There is that scattereth, but it tendeth to increase. There is that withholdeth more than is meat, but it tendeth to poverty. Four in my wallet, zero given away, equals three. Four minus zero equals three because I withheld more than is meat. We should teach our children when there is a gift to be given, when there is the poor to be helped, when there is a church project to be paid for, to give generously. When it's of their time, to give generously. When it's having someone over to your house, spend the extra money on food for someone else rather than for yourself. Generosity. Because the Lord loves a generous giver. The liberal soul shall be made fat, and he that watereth shall be watered himself. This is the word of the Lord. Let's have children. Do you know what it's called when you give a whole lot? It's called that you have a large heart. Largeness of heart. David had a large heart. David gave everything he had. You've, I've, I've preached a sermon to you about what David gave to build the temple of the Lord because he was so generous. And that showed him having a heart like the Lord's heart. Never be stingy. If you're the least bit stingy, you're heading for poverty. If you're generous, you're headed for fatness. We read it from Proverbs 11. I could take you to many other verses. Don't have time. I don't think I need to. Let's teach our children to be generous. What have we covered? Good speech. Let's rule our children's mouths and teach them to speak like a prince and a great woman in the earth. Graciousness which will cause even the king to be your friend because it's the true character of a prince. Godly priorities, a little bit, with love, peace, and righteousness is better than a whole lot without any one of, without those three things. Group dynamics, teach our children not to be loners, but to love the fellowship and camaraderie and commitment and society of others, especially in the church. Sexual purity, God demands our sexual holiness. Marriage only in the Lord. Talk to your children from the earliest days. They'll hardly even know how to think outside that limitation. Spiritual uh, contentment. Godliness with contentment is great gain. The true rule for success. We need to teach our children that. It's not the number of things. It's your attitude toward the things you have. And then generosity. As they give and as they serve, let's teach our children to give and serve liberally. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. May He convict our hearts. If we're old, let's lay hold of these things ourselves. If we have children or grandchildren, let's work at teaching these things to them, that there might be princes and great women in the earth from this church for generations to come until Jesus Christ appears. May Jesus Christ be praised.